0: I don't have anything to say for my intro besides I need to post on Instagram about the last episode that's out. I just It's like never... technically out, just the Instagram yeah, post. I just never there. posted on Instagram. Yeah. We have a short
1: recording time today, and you have a decently long story, so maybe it's just.
0: And I need to go first. Smart to jump on in okay so anybody who well you know how they always do trigger warnings and all these podcasts and like whatever i think those are so stupid if you don't like to hear about murder then don't listen to a true true crime crime podcast yeah and if you're triggered by anything that goes along with what you would see in a forensic files episode then don't listen so if uh, you're somebody who's sensitive to murder either completely don't listen or just skip to say this is part of the episode is this
1: one like particularly gruesome that you're even bothering to mention it uh, not really
0: it doesn't bother me this one does have a little bit of animal issues Aww. but I mean it's a mer it's like yeah it's a this is a true crime part so I mean it's a
1: genuine tree I know last few ones have been a selective like interesting alternative uh, uh, interpretations yeah. of what we like call flowery um, <laughs> yeah this one you, you went back to true true crime yes, I I, did. I have a proper paranormal again so okay. <laughs>
0: here we go so this story today is about andrew kehoe i got my information from multiple wikipedia sources this time it was a lot i did a lot of research i was up until like drew wanted to go to bed right when we got home at like 10 and i don't think i went to bed until like 12 or 1 or something i was just researching and then watch forensic files fall asleep <laughs> that's what it does Uh, um britannica.com click on detroit.com only in your state.com and nypost.com new york post so andrew was born on february 1st 1872 in tecumseh michigan tecumseh tecumseh he was one of 13 children that's a lot first i read that and i said he was one (laughs) i read that as he was 13 when he was born So, no, one of them messed up. So, his parents were Philip Kehoe and Mary McGovern Kehoe. Um, so, Philip had immigrated to America from Ireland when he was eight. Um, and he was, like, a well-established... Not I don't know if he was, like, a rich farmer, but he wasn't, like, a poor... He, he was
1: doing well for himself. Yeah,
0: um, they're obviously Catholic. Um, Philip's first wife died, uh, and they had three kids, I think. Yeah. Um... And he remarried in eighteen sixty six. I'm pretty sure to marry. Um, this one source was just like saying the wives, but not their names because they don't exist to them for some reason, which always that bothers I, me I, I when I do research and they don't say the wife's name when or I'm the doing sister's names or that whatever. Happened before like
1: nineteen forty, <clears throat> I do. I spend more time. The thing that I research the most. <laughs> is trying to find the names of the women in the story. Yes.
0: I'm like even if they're like relatively insignificant to the story, like why why does the father get and to be I named and the mother doesn't? I haven't had any who. But he had three girls with his first wife and then nine more children with his second wife, which I, like I said I'm pretty sure is Mary because the second wife is how he got Andrew and that's they said his mom was Mary. Yeah. Um so they had six girls and three boys. That's a lot of girls. So Andrew was the first boy after six girls. Oh, my gosh. And was considered special and was, like, the male heir to the family's farm. He was only considered special because he was, he was a boy. boy. He <laughs> um, His mother died on November 5th, 1890. One source said that his mother had died when he was very young, but he was, like, 18 when she died. That's not very young to me. Very no. young is, like, they died when you were two or something.
1: Well, and she still has... Um, she still has... So, like, that shouldn't I, have messed him between up. Between three His... and six more children, because those six girls yeah. might be including the original three sisters yeah. from the first marriage, or it could be she had three girls in the three or six girls and the three boys, whatever oh. the math is. She lives so, for a little bit, at least.
0: Um, he loved to tinker with mechanical and electrical devices, and he was really good at physics in school. Also, I'm reading quickly today, because we I'm were actually shocked there was
1: physics in school in 18... 18s. 89 1880
0: 90 <laughs> um he attended how do you say it tecumseh tecumseh high school and michigan state college where he studied electrical engineering he met his future wife that was ellen big yeah wow i guess so um he met his future wife ellen uh her nickname was Nellie price um there but they didn't get married until like later, but Quite that's Quite a, a bit that's later. Um, and she was the daughter of a wealthy Lansing family. Lansing as in Michigan. I oh, okay.
1: One. Like the town.
0: Not like, uh, not like who just boils. <laughs> <laughs> um, so after, after college, he moved to St. Louis, Missouri and worked for several years as a lineman and an electrician. Um, during this time in 1911, he was electrocuted and suffered a severe head injury in Ooh. a fall. So, like he was okay. electrocuted up on the line uh-huh. or wherever he was working, and then fell, um, and he ended up being in a coma for two weeks. Oh, how he also insane. apparently suffered another head injury years later on his farm, but that wasn't really mentioned in too many places. Moral so. of the story
1: is he's 100% received a very nasty con- concussion. Correct,
0: is <laughs> not well in the head. Um, when he moved, uh, he then moved back in with his father after this injury. His family said that he was never quite the same after his head injury, as often, most people, yeah. you know, tend to be, especially with something that severe. Mm-hmm. Um, Along with no itself could do that. too, yeah, let alone including and not having the medicine to help brain swelling back mm-hmm. then. Because um, today, like, if it's really bad, then it, they can still be like you know changed. But like, there's more preventative measures that people can About do. the only
1: preventative measure then is putting a hole in your head. Correct. So. Which is the thing that people successfully have done for thousands of years.
0: There are conflicting <laughs> stories that he had moved away around 17 or 18 and gone to school. Um, and then moved to Iowa and Missouri after that. But some sources said that he had moved after his mother died um, and his father remarried. So not like right when he was 18, but like after his father had gotten remarried. Either way, he's a young adult There's when he moved yeah. away. So and he like lived away from home for quite some time in Iowa in St. Louis like mm-hmm. he wasn't in Michigan. So after his mother died and his father had remarried a much younger widow, Frances Wilder, they had a daughter so he now has like I don't know how old she is whenever Frances moved or not Frances whenever yeah whenever um, he moves back But she's not like a baby, I'm pretty sure. I was going to
1: comment earlier that the math didn't work out for 13 children, but now it does. Yeah, he's like
0: uh, 39 when he moves back home after his injury. And it was known that Kehoe did not like Frances, the new wife. Um, And like I said, I don't know if it's like he just didn't like her after moving back and meeting her for the first time or if the story was how he left when he got remarried. Yeah, and didn't was, like, like, like better
1: about the you fact know? that his dad had remarried yeah. and didn't like this woman.
0: Yeah. So, he apparently, knows. he had also killed his half-sister's cat at some point. But I don't really know if that's true because it was, like, thrown in in some stories and not. That could just be legend.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um On September 17th, 1911... Francis attempted to light the family's oil stove when it exploded and set her on fire. Oh. Kehoe threw a bucket of water on her, but since the fire was oil based, this just spread around the flames quicker and they engulfed her body even oh more gosh. than they already had. Her injuries were fatal. She only died like, she only lived for like two hours after she initially oh, was like, that's, yeah. put out. <laughs> yeah. um And her injury, wait, I read it. And, well, it says she died the next day, but that's, I don't think that's right. I think she had only It wasn't a long suffering In the grand scheme of things um, Kehoe uh, This was like 8 months after this event Married um, Ellen Agnes is her middle name I forgot to put it in up there But Nellie is what everybody called her Mm -hmm. Price in May of 1912 At the age of 40 um, And Nellie was 38 And 7 years later Bought a 108 They were still living on his father's farm after this Like with his dad still. Yeah. Um, And then seven years later bought a 185 acre farm outside of Bath Township from Nellie's aunt, who had just passed away, I think, for $12,000, which is about $364,000 today. He paid $6,000 in cash and took out a $6,000 mortgage. At the 50% down Um, payment. But it also said that Nellie's family owned the mortgage. So I I don't know how that worked. So they may have loaned him the money. Okay. It was said that Nellie's family had owned the mortgage, and he paid them around 300 dollars monthly to cover it. Um, he was regarded by his neighbors as a highly intelligent man who grew up impatient and angry with those who disagreed with him. Neighbors said, and this is neighbors, so this might be a different personality change from the head injury mm-hmm. because for some reason there's nothing from no, any of his he's not siblings growing.
1: he's just someone who is highly intelligent and was no yeah i'm patient. saying from
0: his neighbors yeah so that's why i'm saying this is a this is his personality after the head injury okay i, understand I don't that. know what his original personality was because for some reason there's no no interviews with the people often don't take with the siblings the or anything <laughs> well even after what that's was true. he like growing up there's 13 of you, yeah, or tw- there's 12 of you. Somebody one of you should you don't know. know. To remember, um, some of you talk. One of you talk to your brother at some point. Yeah. Heart. So neighbors said he was always really neat. Um, he dressed meticulously and was known to change his shirt at midday or whenever it became even slightly dirty. Like if he, if he was in town, that's a lot of laundry. And he got something on his shirt. He would like run home and change and then come back. Um, They said, like, all the tools in the farm were, like, super clean and, like, Mm -hmm. basically, like, monk, but, Mm -hmm. like, not as severe. But everybody says he has, like, some kind of OCD or something. Mm -hmm. I was listening to one, like, weird, obscure YouTube video that I don't know if I trust, but they were saying, like he would have been diagnosed with this, this, and this. And I'm like, okay, what How do you know? Like, don't you diagnose people <laughs> yeah. when you
1: don't know
0: I'm like, he's, don't do that. I'm like, he's long dead. I don't think we can do that. You can assume. We can talk about how these are characteristics or symptoms, yeah. but don't diagnose. Um, they also said that he was known to be cruel to his farm animals. He once beat one of his horses to death, which that enraged me. That's And also he an shot ex- a neighbor's dog, which ex- also enrages me. The horse thing is
1: really, really common with fir- farmers, though. It's really unfortunate. Not like all farmers. Farmers are bad, but like when you're working your land, it's yeah. something that is, happens. Obviously it can be avoided. I'm not in any way defending anyone, but it's not.
0: I don't care. I would personally like to beat the farmers the way they did their animals. It, it's true, um, yeah. And when it came on his, pro- or he, he shot the neighbor's dog when it came on his property and annoyed him by barking. Um, Which like, that's not, I'm not necessarily a, like a killer kind of thing. The shooting the dog, it's just a man thing in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> so anyway, I mean, nobody should be doing that. Obviously, no. like I already said. But no, it's like, it's like, that it's like, it's like a weird weird, man,
1: toxic masculinity, like yeah. territorial. Thing I have to put it in its do. place. Yeah.
0: Okay, let me put you in your place then.
1: Because not everyone sees animals as like things with children.
0: Because my animals yeah. are my yeah. children. <laughs> So his neighbors also said they thought he preferred mechanical tinkering to farming, even still into, mm-hmm. you know, he came back to settle down after being shocked. Um, his neighbor, M.J. Monty Ellsworth, wrote, quote, he never farmed it as other farmers do, and he tried to do everything with his tractor. He was in the height of his glory when he was fixing machinery or tinkering, He was always trying to find new methods in his work. For instance, hitching two mowers behind his tractor. This method did not work (laughs) at different times, and he would just leave the hay standing. He also put four sections of drag and two rollers at once behind his tractor i don't know what that means but obviously that's not the correct way in this, man's I, I mean
1: he's just in he's trying, spent, attempting innovation yeah these are all things that exist now basically yeah not that he invented them but he like, spent
0: so much time tinkering that he didn't prosper so even though he farmer. grew up as a farmer yeah he wasn't a good farmer which like You've disappointed your father, but anyway, (laughs) he had such high hopes for you. So he was known to be frugal and quote had a reputation for thrift. So he was elected as a trustee in 1924 on the Bath Consolidated School Board. It's Bath is like a really small town. It's where they moved Mm -hmm. their farm to their to the farm that they have now, and then it's like you know small town schools where Mm -hmm. it's one town that has the big school that everybody around goes to all the farmers kids Mm -hmm. all the other small towns whatever um anyway so the bath consolidated school board for three years and treasurer for one year um he argued strongly for lower taxes and the superintendent of the board mw kelly keys sorry said that he quote Fought the expenditure of money for the expenditure. most expenditure. Oh, expenditure of money for the most necessary equipment. Um, I think one of the examples was like he didn't want them to get books and
1: they don't need books, at just school. like
0: you know, regular school supplies that like you need to teach children with.
1: That's not necessary, you should um, just know it and tell
0: them. He was difficult. That's, I mean, fair enough. He was difficult to work with. He often Voted against other members of the board and argued with the township financial authorities. He protested that he paid too much in taxes, which fair enough, we still do to this day, and tried to get the valuation of his property reduced so he would pay less. In 1922, the Bath Township school tax was $12.26 for every $1,000 valuation is the right word, right? Of a property? Sure. Um, With the valuation on Keyhose farm being $10,000, which is around $174,831 today, um... So, you can do the math. um Actually, I think it does it down here later. Um, but then in 1923, the school board raised the tax to $18.80. So, this meant that Kehoe's tax liability went up from $122.60 in 1922, which is around $2,143 today. He would be. He would be not okay in this world today. Mm -mm. To $198 in 1926, which is around $3,273 today. By the way, this is a yearly tax. Yeah. It's not a monthly tax. No. So in June 1926, Kehoe was notified that the widow of his wife's uncle, um, the former owner of this property, who held the mortgage on his property, had begun foreclosure proceedings... And Kehoe, at this point, had not paid the mortgage in four years. Um, <laughs> um So, like, they should be foreclosing. <laughs> uh-huh. So in 1925, he was appointed as temporary. T- I know we're going back in time here from 26. But he was appointed as temporary town clerk. Um, one source said that he was trying to run for justice of the peace. But anyway, he's doing something with, like, the town council. Yeah. Um, but was defeated in the April 5th, 1926 election for that office. This public rejection angered him because they didn't agree with what he wanted. <laughs> so his neighbor, A, I guess he that's doesn't get his first, first name. McMull, well, I know, but I'm saying. Most of the people you've had in here have just that's had true. First Said that he had stopped working on his farm altogether for most of the preceding year, and he had thought that Kehoe was planning suicide just because... It was a thing that a lot of farmers did. Yeah, that's and, you know, still a thing today. And, you know, if you're slowing down on your work and you're just, like, letting it fall the wayside, that is, you know... Signs of depression. The conclusion. <laughs> um, So, around 8.45 a.m. on Wednesday, May 18th, 1927, Kehoe detonated... De- I need to read that again. Try again. Around 8.45 a.m. on Wednesday, May 18th, 1927, Kehoe detonated... <laughs> I can't detonated. detonated, detonated, fire bombs in his house and farm buildings, causing some debris to fly into neighbors' chick into a neighbor's chicken house. Neighbors notice the fire and volunteers. R- I don't know why they mentioned the chicken house. That's how Unless, far. I, that's how big of an explosion okay. I was going to say it I don't think the chicken house the caught on property. fire, but so neighbors notice the fire and volunteers rush to the scene. O.H. Bush, and several other men crawled through a broken window of the farmhouse in search of survivors because they just assume it's like some crazy house fire or something Mm -hmm. um when they found no one in the house they salvaged what furniture they could before the fire spread into the living room bush discovered dynamite in the corner and picked up an armful of explosives and handed it to one of the other men kehoe in his ford truck appeared out of the smoke and left his burning home as he did, he stopped to tell those fighting the fire that they should get to the school and then drove off. Oh,
1: oh my goodness.
0: So classes at the Bath Consolidated School began at 8.30 a.m. and Kehoe had set an alarm clock in the basement of the school's north wing, which, detona- which detonated the dynamite. I want to say the T in there so bad. Detonated. Um, <laughs> which detonated the dynamite in pyrotol. Um, which is an explosive agent that it, mm-hmm. it says it somewhere else in here. He had hidden there at about 8:45 a.m. Rescuers heading to the scene of the Kehoe Farm fire heard the explosion at the school and turned back in that direction. The school looked like a war zone with 38 people being killed in the initial explosion, and obviously most of them were children. How is this not like a more talked about? I literally saw this story and I was like, I have literally never heard of this more in this my is, entire this is crazy. life. Crazy. So, eyewitnesses and survivors were interviewed afterwards by newspaper reporters. Um, first first grade teacher. Okay. No, because there's oh. another teacher that I, I put a quote from her in here, but I think it's down for her. And I was like, that shouldn't be there. Um, First grade teacher Bernice Sterling told an Associated Press reporter that the explosion was like an earthquake. Quote, the air seemed to be full of children and flying desks and books. Children were tossed high in the air. Some were catapulted out of the building. Robert Gates was an eyewitness who said, quote, mother after mother came running into the schoolyard and demanded information about her child and on seeing the lifeless form lying on the lawn, sobbed and swooned. In no time, more than 100 men at work tearing away the debris of the school, and nearly as many women were frantically pawing over the timber and broken bricks for traces of their children. I saw more than one, women, one woman lift clusters of bricks held together by mortar, heavier than the average man could handle without a crowbar. Yeah, because women are forever bigger than men. Goodbye. They have that question. Um, Ellsworth said, quote, I saw one mother, Mrs. Eugene Hart, sitting on the bank, a short distance from the school, with a little girl dead on each side of her, oh, so and holding sad. a little boy Percy, who died a short time after they got him to the hospital. Oh, that's so sad. This was about the time Kehoe blew up his car in the street, severely wounding Perry, the oldest child of Mister and Missus Hart.
1: Goodness.
0: Um, the north wing of the school had collapsed, leaving the edge of the roof on the ground. Ellsworth recalled that quote: "There was a pile of children of about five or six under the roof." He volunteered to drive back to his farm and get a rope heavy enough to pull the school roof off the children's bodies. Returning to his farm, he saw Kehoe driving in the opposite direction, heading towards the school. In a different car? No. He was still heading to the school. Oh. Ellsworth was at the school when this happened. So this is pre-blowing up his car? Yes. Okay. Um, Quote, he grinned and waved his hand. Ellsworth, um, he also said that... When he grinned, I could see both rows of his teeth. Oh. So he's like a total psycho uh-huh. at this point. Kehoe drove into the school about half an hour after the first explosion. He okay. saw Superintendent Emory Hick, um, and I I mentioned a different superintendent, but that's you'll see why mm-hmm. in a second. And called him over to his truck. Charles Hawson testified at the coroner's inquest that he saw the two men grapple over some type of long gun before Kehoe detonate detonated sorry i can't read that word the explosive stored in his truck immediately killing himself um hayek nelson mcferrin a retired farmer and cleo clayton an eight-year-old second grader who had survived the first blast and then wandered out of the school building and was killed by the shrapnel from the vehicle so that's terrible um but yeah obviously the the superintendent um got killed and then Mm -hmm. appointed. The Mm -hmm. other one that I mentioned somewhere um, above in a different quote. But it
1: doesn't look like, as they haven't mentioned here, that the other heart child that got hit with the shrapnel from this didn't die in that, so they still have their oldest. Um, Unless you list them as dead later. I can't remember, we'll see.
0: (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) So the truck explosion spread debris over a large area and caused extensive damage to cars parked a half block away with their roofs catching on fire from the burning gasoline. It injured several others and mortally wounded postman Glenn O. Smith, who lost a leg and died before making it to the hospital. O.H. Bush said one of his crew, uh, bound up, up, quote, the wounds of Glenn Smith, the postmaster. His leg had been blown off.
1: Goodness.
0: So, we're at the recovery and rescue. So, telephone operators stayed at their stations for hours to gather doctors, undertakers, area hospital workers, and anyone else who might be I mean, able we're to help. We're in a small in town. It's way. not like
1: we're in, like, a city or something no. where there's, like, a large, established, like, yeah. surgical wing in a hospital nearby. Mm-hmm.
0: So, the Lansing Fire Department sent several firefighters and its chief, local physician J.A. Crum, and his wife, a nurse, who had both served in World War One Honestly, turned, that's a good thing. I know. Turned their <laughs> Bath Township drugstore into a triage center. The dead bodies were taken to the town hall, which was used as a morgue. Because there's just yeah. there's no room yeah. in this small town. So hundreds of people worked in the wreckage all day and into the night in an effort to find and rescue any children pinned underneath, um, like any of the debris mm-hmm. in the school and now this car. Area contractors sent all their men to assist, and many other people came to the scene in response to pleas for help. Eventually, 30, 34 firefighters and the chief of the Lansing Fire Department arrived, which like I said, I don't know how far Lansing is from Bath, but um, they had heard of it like in this mm-hmm. paragraph earlier and were on their way, um, as did several Michigan State police officers who managed traffic to and from the scene michigan governor fred w green arrived during the afternoon of the disaster and assisted in the relief work carting bricks away from the scene the lawrence baking company of lansing sent a truck filled with pies and sandwiches which were served to rescuers in the township's community hall. the injured and dying were transported to sparrow hospital and st lawrence hospital in lansing during the search for survivors and victims rescuers found an additional 500 pounds of dynamite which had not detonated in the south wing of the school.
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: The search was halted to allow state police to disarm the devices, and they found an alarm clock um, that was set to go off at 8.45 a.m. Investigators thought that the initial explosion may have caused a short circuit in the second set of bombs, which prevented them from detonating. I just can't get it. Um, if both bombs had gone off, all of the two hundred and thirty six children in the school would have been killed oh. and that would have like destroyed mm-hmm. that area oh, yeah, for that generations. Been, yeah. Um they searched the rest of the building and they returned to the recovery work. So like this guy had literally been which I'll get into it more, but Kehoe had been like able to he had access to the school and I think it was like months he was just he was an electrician, you know. Mm-hmm. So he's wiring all this different like bomb stuff. Mm-hmm underneath the school for a few months um, and that's why there's so much down there because yeah. he was able to do that and Bath knew Lake what he was doing essentially.
1: An outskirt of town of Lansing by the way
0: Lansing's the okay. capital of Michigan. Police and fire officials gathered at the Kehoe farm to investigate the fires there um, after of course mm-hmm. they found everybody. Um, state troopers had searched for Nellie Kehoe throughout Michigan thinking that she might be at a tur- tuberculosis sanatorium but they found her charred remains among the ruins of the oh, farm oh, a day after the bombings. So Kehoe had piled all of the family's prized possessions and all of her medical bills on top of her body.
1: Oh, so he had...
0: All of the Kehoe farm buildings were destroyed. Um, that means she was dead before the he fire had, was set. Yes. He had two horses that were inside the barn and had died because they were trapped. Uh-huh. And investigators found that their legs had been tied together with wire, which Why? prevented them from even being able to escape. Investigators also found a wooden sign on the farm's fence which with Kehoe's last message on it that said criminals are made not born. So now we're at the aftermath. So the American Red Cross set up an operation center at the Crumb Store and provided aid and comfort to the victims. The Lansing Red Cross headquarters opened until 11 that 11:30 that night to answer phone calls update the list of dead and injured and provide information and planning services for the following day the associated press said this about the community quote a sympathetic public assured the rehabilitation of the stricken community aid was tendered freely in the hope that the grief of those who lost loved ones might even might be even slightly mitigated the Red Cross maintained or managed donations sent to pay for medical expenses of the survivors and the burial costs of the deceased. Mm-hmm. In a few weeks, $5,284 was raised through donations, including $2,500 from the Clinton County Board of Supervisors and $2,000 from the Michigan Legislature. The disaster received nationwide coverage in the following days, but it shared headlines with Charles Lindbergh's transatlantic crossing. And of course the crossing received more attention than this. Um, Newspaper headlines from across the U.S. characterized Kehoe as a manic, a madman, and a fiend, which personally I don't feel like a fiend is like even remotely close to as terrible as he is. (laughs) Unless fiend had a very different connotation. Yeah. But when I think of fiend, I think of someone that's, like, is obsessed mm-hmm. with chocolate or something. <laughs> I don't know, but that's what comes to my mind. Um, so, people from across the world express sympathy to the families and the community of Bath Township, including letters from some Italian school children, which, like, I just found this part very odd, but also cute. Um, so, one fifth grade class wrote, quote, Even if we are small, we understand all the sorrow and misfortune that has struck our dear brothers. Another Italian class wrote, quote, We are praying to God to give the unfortunate mothers and fathers the strength to bear the great sorrow that has descended on them. We are near to you in spirit. Aww. So Kehoe's body was claimed by one of his sisters and was buried in an unmarked grave in the pauper section of Mount Rest Cemetery in St. John's, Michigan. Which Mount Rest Cemetery? What a good yeah. name! so the prince family buried Nellie prince kehoe in a lansing cemetery under her maiden name i would too Ch-ch-ch. vehicles from outside areas and surrounding states arrived in bath township by the thousands thousands of vehicles passed through on saturday alone which was a lot of traffic for this area because only about 300 adults lived in bath at the time that's a lot yeah that's, um, that's a lot of people so burials of individual victims started on started that Friday, two days after the disaster, which, like, it surprises me so much how quick they put people in the ground back then. Well, because they weren't doing all the embalming, so if they you know, did they were but,
1: rotting very quickly. But
0: I just, I don't know. I feel like these days, I mean, people grieve in different ways, but I feel like it's, like, held off most of the time. Like, there was one that I saw somebody didn't get married for, like, a month or two after they died. That's yeah, money. And I was like, Whoa. It's all money. That way they can charge every so, moment they're sitting in the storage facility. Maybe. So funerals and burials continued on Saturday and Sunday until all the dead bodies were buried. On Sunday, May 22nd, more than 25,000 spectators came through the town to view the disaster scene. Many made their visit an outing and put picnic blankets down on the roads in and out of town. One person even snipped a piece of Kehoe's intestine off the steering wheel of his blown-up car and put it in a jar of formaldehyde, which, like, to some, there was some one article, they were, like, it wasn't, I don't know if it was an article or a YouTube video, but they were, like, this is so disgusting, and I'm, like, yeah, you're saying, do you not remember disaster, death tourism like de- Yeah, then? disaster like, and death
1: tourism was a huge thing. Here's so the thing, there's a reason true crime is a popular, um... It's always been thing popular, now. It's right? always been popular. People are fascinated by that.
0: For a time following the tragedy, the town and Kehoe's burnt out farm continued to attract tourists for like the reasons uh-huh. of seeing uh-huh. what happened. Which people still do now. So we're at the coroner's inquest now. So the coroner arrived at the scene on the day of the disaster and swore in six community leaders that afternoon to serve as a jury, investigating the death of Superintendent Hayek I'm just gonna say Hayek. Hayek? i said it before and I probably butchered it then. I'm sorry. So informal testimony had been taken on May 19th and the formal coroner's inquest started on May 23rd. The Clinton County prosecutor conducted the examination and more than 50 people testified before the jury. During his testimony, David Hart stated that Kehoe had told him that he had killed a horse and the New York Times reported people as saying that Kehoe had an ungovernable temper and seemed to have a mania for killing things. The neighbors testified that he had been wiring the buildings at his farm about that time and that he was evasive about his reasons. So they were like, huh. Hey, when so did they'd you see do him over doing these weird things? Um, like, what's what's all that you've said up there? Following the disaster, this well, this might be a little bit before what I'm about to say, but I'm just gonna say it now so, so I don't, you don't forget. forget. <laughs> so following the disaster the local sheriff who had served the foreclosure notice re- reported that Kehoe muttered, quote, if it hadn't been for that $300 school tax, I might have paid off this mortgage. Well, I think if it was well, you were oh, a better farmer, hmm. it might have been. Are so <laughs> Mrs. Price, uh, the mortgage holder, Yeah. also reported that he said, quote, if I can't live in that house, no one else will, when she mentioned foreclosure to him. So neighbors said by this time he had not taken care of the farm at all and the crops had been left to rot in the field so it was like even before he was like this had been a plan being for, for a long time. On. no even before he was being foreclosed on he wasn't being a good farmer like he's complaining about the taxes but also
1: isn't doing anything to make the, money the, like Mrs. Price had warned him prior to this and also he knew it was coming and he wasn't going to do anything to change it
0: Kehoe's neighbor, Sidney J. Howell, testified that after the fire began at the Kehoe farm, Kehoe warned him and three men to leave there, saying, quote, Boys, you are my friends. You better get out of here. You better go down to the school. Three telephone linemen working near Bath Township testified that Kehoe passed them in his truck on the road toward the school, and they saw him arrive there. His truck swerved and stopped in front of the building. In the next instant, according to the linemen, the truck blew up and one of them was struck by shrapnel. Other witnesses testified that Kehoe paused after stopping, calling Hayek over to the truck, and that the two men struggled before Kehoe's truck was blown up. And it was um, assumed that Kehoe had, had grabbed the gun, shot the dynamite, and like he saw, Hayek saw him mm-hmm. grabbing the gun and was like trying to grab it from him. Um, and he, the dynamite, okay, so he shot the dynamite in the car. Instantly blows up. Car blows up. Kills the man. And then kills those two men and then the other people with the shrapnel he okay there was never any doubt that Kehoe was the perpetrator but the jury was asked to determine if the school board or its employees were guilty of criminal negligence no (laughs) after more than a week of testimony the jury exonerated the school board and its employees in its verdict the jury concluded that Kehoe quote conducted himself sanely and so concluded his operations that there was no cause to suspect concealed
1: his operations
0: concealed his operations that there was no cause to suspect any of his actions and we further find that the school board and Frank Smith, janitor of the school building, were not negligent in and about their duties. And were not guilty of any negligence in its in in not discovering Kehoe's plan.
1: That's fair. I didn't think about that part that like he had wired up the entire school and no one noticed. I thought it meant more like um, they had caused the situation with no, the taxes. Yeah. That makes so much more sense. The
0: inquest determined that Kehoe murdered Hayek on the morning of May 18th. It also it was also the jury's verdict that the school was blown up as part of a plan and that Kiho alone, without the aid of conspirators, murdered 43 people in total, including his wife Nellie. Suicide was determined to be the cause of Kehoe's death, which brought the, the total number of dead to 44 at the time of the inquest. Thirty-eight children and six adults. On August twenty-second, three months after the bombing, fourth-grader Beatrice Gibbs died following hip surgery. Um, hers was the forty-fifth and final death directly attributed to the bath school disaster, which made it the deadliest attack ever to occur in any American school to date. And it said this on it said to date on Wikipedia, and I didn't look to see um if any have surpassed it by now um but like most of the stuff was saying like all of the I don't know anyway so any I didn't look up to fact check that but it's a very large number dead at a school so I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's still to this day um,
1: as of May eighteenth, twenty twenty three, uh, the ma- the Michigan's bath school disaster is still the deadliest okay. disaster to happen to school today. I don't know if disaster is the same as like mass shootings, but I yeah. don't think mass shootings have even achieved that many.
0: I don't think so. So Richard Fritz, whose older sister Marjorie was killed in the explosion, was injured and died almost one year later of myocarditis. At the age of eight, although Richard is not included on many lists of the victims, his death from myocarditis is thought to have directly, have been directly caused by an infection resulting from his injuries of of the bombing. So that would bring him up to 46, Mm -hmm. if it was related. Sometime after the disaster, it was discovered that Kehoe had cut all of his wire fences as part of his preparation to destroy his farm, um, girdling young shade trees to kill them and cutting off his grapevine plants before putting them on their stumps to hide the damage. And girdling is when you, like, rip off a all ring bark of bark, yeah. and then it kills your tree for some reason. He gathered lumber and other materials and put them in the tool shed, which he also destroyed with a bomb. By the time of the bombings, Nellie Kehoe had become chronically ill with what resembled tuberculosis, which, which there was no. She eff- might have been
1: in a yeah,
0: which there was no effective treatment or cure for at the time, and it is thought that her frequent hospital bills, her, her hospital stays, might have contributed to, contributed to the Kehoe's debt. Kehoe had stopped making mortgage payments and homeowners Mm -hmm. insurance payments months before the event, if not years, because some said months, but I think it might have been years. So no one is sure exactly why or when Kehoe decided to start planning this event, but Ellsworth, one of his neighbors, thought that he had conceived his plan after being defeated in the 1926 clerk election. Mm Mm-hmm. The consensus of the townspeople was that he had worked on this plan at least since the previous august bass school board member mw keys was quoted by the new york times quote i have no doubt that he made his plan last fall 1926 to blow up the school he was an experienced electrician and the board employed him in november to make some repairs on the school's lighting system he had ample opportunity then to plant the explosives and lay the wires for touch For touching it off. Bernice Sterling was a first grade teacher in Bath, Michigan in 1927, when she asked school board treasurer at the time, Andrew Kehoe, for a favor. Sterling wanted to have fun with her students on the final day of school, so she wondered if the class could picnic in a shady grove of trees on Kehoe's farm that Wednesday, May 18th. Kehoe agreed, but he urged Sterling's class not to wait till that date. Instead, he said they should have their picnic quote right away. After asked after May 18th why he thought Keo why she thought Kehoe had made that suggestion, both resident um, Monty Ellsworth gave a stark reply quote I suppose he wanted to have he wanted the children to have a little fun before he killed them. I guess. Kehoe had free access to the school building during the summer vacation of 1926 because he was a bookkeeper and their unofic- unofficial groundskeeper slash mm-hmm. handyman, as it said here. So from mid-1926, he began buying, buying more than a ton of... What was that called? pyritin or whatever? Because this is a typo. Piratine. Um Which is an incendiary device incendiary device used by farmers during the time for excavation on and a burning debris. In November 1926, he drove to Lansing and bought two boxes of dynamite at a sporting goods store. This was also commonly used by farmers at the time. Mm-hmm. So him buying small amounts of explosives at different stores and on different dates did not raise any suspicion. Neighbors reported hearing explosions on the farm, with one calling him the dynamite farmer. Oh. But I feel like it didn't even raise red flags for them because they thought he didn't do anything normal to mm-hmm. begin with on when yeah, he was he liked Yeah, he likes dynamite. So following the disaster, it was reported that Michigan State Police investigators had discovered that a considerable amount of dynamite had been stolen from a bridge construction site, and that Kehoe was suspected of the theft. They also recovered a container of gasoline rigged with a tube in the school's basement, and it was speculated that Kehoe had planned that the gas fumes would ignite from a spark scattering the burning gas throughout the basement. Uh. In the undamaged section of the school, it was found that Kehoe had concealed the explosive in six lengths of eaves trough pipe, three bamboo fishing rods, and what were described as, quote, windmill rods that were placed in the basement ceiling. He he was making sure there was Um, extra shrapnel. mm -hmm. Kehoe also purchased a thirty caliber Winchester bolt action rifle in December 1926, according to the testimony of Lieutenant Lyle Morse, a Michigan state police investigator with the Department of Public Security, which could have been the gun he used Mm -hmm. in the car. So prior to the day of the disaster, Kehoe had loaded the backseat of his truck with metal debris capable of producing shrapnel during the explosion. He also bought a new set of tires for his truck to avoid breaking down when transporting the explosives. He made many trips to Lansing for more explosives, as well as to the school, the township, and his house. Ida Hall, who lived in a house next to the school, saw activity around the building on different nights during May. Early one morning after midnight, she saw a man carrying objects inside. She also saw vehicles around the building several times late at night. Hall mentioned these events to a relative, but they were never reported to police. Nellie was discharged from Lansing's State Lawrence Hospital on May 16th and was murdered by Kehoe sometime between her release and the bombings two days later. Kehoe put her body in a wheelbarrow at the back of the farm's chicken coop where it was found in a heavily charred condition after the farm explosives and fire. And piled around the cart were silverware and a metal cash box, and the ashes of several banknotes could be seen through a slit in the cash box. Mm-hmm. Kehoe placed and wired homemade fire firebombs in the house and throughout the farm buildings and like destroyed the entire place. Mm-hmm. We're at the end, everybody. <sighs> So, green Governor building. Green quickly recalled for donations to aid the town pe- townspeople and created the bath relief fund. With the money supplied by donors, the state, and local governments, people from around the country donated to the fund. School resumed on September fifth, nineteen twenty-seven, and for the nineteen twenty-seven to nineteen twenty-eight school year was held in the county hall, township hall, and two retail buildings. Most of the surviving students returned. Um, I guess some didn't want to come back because of the trauma that had happened. Mm-hmm. Or they were like, yeah, you're never going back to school again. You are homeschooled the rest of your life. Um, the board appointed O.M. Brant of Luther, Michigan, to secede Hayek as superintendent. Lansing architect... Architect Warren Holmes donated construction plans, and the school board approved the contract for a new building on September 14th. On September 15th, U.S. Senator James J. Cousins presented his personal check for $75,000, which is about $1,263,506 today, to the Bath Construction Fund to help build the new school. You read that number really well. I know, thank you. I used to not be able to read numbers Yeah, I know, like I'm that. really proud of you. The board <laughs> demolished... <laughs> The damaged portion of the school and constructed a new wing with the donated funds during the reconstruction. Dynamite was found in the building on three separate occasions. The James (laughs) Cousins Ag Agricultural agricultural School. school. (laughs) Sorry, could read because Cousins was spelled so. It's. I guess that's how his name is spelled. Yeah, it's it's a name and it's fine, but it's not spelled how you normally spell Cousins. Was dedicated on August eighteenth, nineteen twenty-eight. The Kehoe farm was completely plowed to ensure that no explosives were hidden in the ground and And was sold at auction to pay the mortgage. That was really smart. (laughs) Artist Carlton W. Angle presented the board with a memorial statue in 1928 entitled Girl with a Cat. Don't know... but that there might be. have been, like, an image so, that came out during that time that <laughs> yeah, depicted I that. I don't know.
1: That so the basketball
0: Museum in the school district's middle school contains many items con- connected with the disaster, including that statue.
1: So it's considering, by the way, this is a massacre disaster. <coughs> mm-hmm. There's, like, I think the worst disaster was an entire school blew up because of um, a gas leak. Okay. Um, so that would be, like, a non-malicious mm-hmm. disaster. Just just in case anyone was like, but I thought it yeah. was this.
0: Um, This is, like, (laughs) purposeful. So, in 1975, the Cousins Building was demolished, and the site was redeveloped as the James Cousins Memorial Park, dedicated to the victims. At the center of the park is the Bath Consolidated School's original cupola. Which, right? Right. Which survived uh, yeah. the disaster and remained on the school until the cousins building was torn like down. Like the top, the top, yeah. I was like, that, I know bit that's some weird. I'm just making it's like sure. A steeple, that's what but it said. when it's not a church. <laughs> um, after some debate, a Michigan State historical marker was installed at the park in 1991 by the Michigan Historical Commission. In 2002, a bronze plaque bearing the names of those killed in the, in the disaster was placed on a large stone near the entrance of the park. Which, like, why is there a debate that you're memorializing the people who were killed there in a big disaster? There shouldn't people be People don't
1: want to spend money on things for selfish reasons.
0: You know, sounds Let's like That's sort of how, how we Key got us here. <laughs> so, on November 3rd, 2008, the town announced uh, that tombstones had been donated for Emil and Robert Bromunt, um, the last two bombing victims whose graves were still unmarked. A grant for a foundation paid for the grave markers, and in September 2014, a gravestone was installed at the grave of Richard A. Fritz, whose death in 1928 was attributed to injuries sustained in the explosion. Mm-hmm. The gravestone was paid for by an author writing about the disaster for a book. That's really oh, nice. That's nice. A documentary on the disaster was released in 2011, including interviews with various survivors, which had been taped starting in 2004. May 18th, 2017, the disaster's 90th anniversary was marked with a panel discussion at the Bath Middle School. On May 1st, 2022, weeks short of the disaster's 95th anniversary, Irene Dunham, the last, Bath, the last Bath School student from the time of the disaster, died at age 114. Good for her. Um... And unfortunately, yeah. That's. that's Unfortunately, wow. I didn't find this documentary. Um, it said there's like one in the making. I'm. Like they're making a new one. I'm wondering if it was like a um, local, like maybe. small scale one. But anyway, that is a story of Andrew Kehoe and the Bass School disaster. How is that not something that. Um, I've never heard of it in about? my life. That's,
1: that's like one of the most blatantly planned out malicious things I've mm-hmm. ever heard of. Yeah in all the things we've covered we've yep. covered some pretty gross things but well, generally our true crime is a little more
0: light but yeah <laughs> but i was like i know this is like upsetting an upsetting topic for no, a lot of it's people like, but like for me i'm like i've never heard of this and no. i feel like it should be covered because that's why have we never heard of it
1: but yeah no that's well because charles Lindbergh did his transatlantic flight the same day your turn. So I'm going to tell the story of Henderson Castle. I know I've talked about it on here before because I got to stay there and it was really cool. Um, so I thought, it's time to share a story. And lucky for us, it's a lovely story, even though it's a paranormal. Um, so it's a great thing to follow what you yes. just told us. <laughs> so my sources are hendersoncastle.com, uh, KPL.govs. that's uh, Kalamazoo Public Library. Um, only in your state, wwmt.com, and mlive.com. I don't know what those last two are, but... They had some resources for the paranormal side, so we're on here. Um, so Henderson Castle is located on West Main Hill, overlooking downtown, down, down, downtown, downtown, Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, the castle was built by. <laughs> Frank,
0: you all did a Michigan story.
1: <laughs> that what they were That's doing. That's why I in Michigan. Again.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so the castle was built by Frank Henderson, and um, who was a successful businessman who owned the Henderson Ames Company. Um, So originally it was just the Henderson Company, he made saddles, and then he combined with um, someone else to make, well, with Ames, to make the Henderson Ames Company, um, and then they dropped saddles. That went off with uh, one of his old business partners. And so he started just making, um, they were one of the country's leading producers in uniforms and regalia, and this, um, it included some military uniforms, but their big thing was for fraternal lodges, secret societies, and other social organizations. (laughs) Apparently after his death, that company got in trouble because they had bought back all the old Spanish-American uniforms. They just, like, oh. bought them all and, like, cleaned them all up, sewed them all up, put new, like, bits and bobbles on it here and there, and resold them <laughs> <laughs> to the state hey, of Michigan. Gotta be and animated. Michigan was like, um, no, you have to label it as, like, reused at least. You can't say this is an all-new uniform. That's, anyway, I mean, so That was really, new to you,
0: isn't it? No, <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> that's funny. So he wasn't there for that, though. That wasn't him. Um, so Mary Henderson, Frank's wife Inherited a sizable plot of land On the outskirts of Kalamazoo like, And I don't mean like a nice three acres For like a big mansion house I mean like like a farm, farm yeah. sized plot of land um, And so Frank Upon, I don't know if it was, this was a dream he always had Or it was once he saw this land that he was like I know what I need to do. He wanted to make the land into a grand suburb, a beautifully planned, like thought out village on the end of Kalamazo on the edge of Kalamazoo. Right? He wanted mm. to make Kalamazoo's first suburb because Kalamazoo wasn't quite that big yet to need that yet. Um, he wanted to create this like naturalistic landscape. He wanted to take advantage of this, like the natural hilly topography there instead of like flattening it. He wanted to like just just make this beautiful walking suburb, yeah. which is lovely, um, and. It did did actually get built. It has, like, lovely meandering roads, large lots, upscale homes. Like, it was pretty, I assume, decently close to what he was desiring. Of course, I'm seeing the modern version of it now, so things have changed a little bit, but it's there.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And his castle was to sit on the edge of this neighborhood, so it would be part of it. He'd be one of the houses in the neighborhood. So, Henderson Castle is a large, Queen Anne-style house, and it's just called, because it's very grand, called Castle because it's made of hard things and It's really neat. Um, That's what we call castles. call castle because we don't have
0: them here. We don't have them here.
1: So (laughs) big, pretty houses are castles, which is, to be fair, what a lot of castles are in Europe, too. Yeah. Um, But
0: they're cool in here.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, It consists of 25 rooms, including seven baths, a 13 head shower. um, And I can't figure out if that means a head shower with 13 heads. Or if it was 13 showers, and it's just a weird way of phrasing that. I like I to think know. it's a shower with 13 heads, because um, that's more fun. <laughs> it had an elevator, and it had a third-floor ballroom. Um, and later, a rooftop hot tub was added. So nice. the house was constructed out of brick and sandstone, and the interior woodwork was made of mahogany, bird's eye maple, um, quartered oak, birch, and sycamore. It's It's lovely. It's all there still. Um, the whole castle cost around $72,000 to build, which is um, two million six hundred twenty. And <laughs> You read your numbers so well, and I Why read mine so bad. $2,620,208 yes. today. good job. Um, I forgot to add the thousand, and that's where I got tripped up. <laughs> so the grand opening was, of the castle was celebrated with a party in, ni- in 1895. And just, you know all the Who's Who of Kalamazoo uh, attended because why would you not? Somebody built a really fun, pretty new house. I wanna go see it. So Frank unfortunately only got to live in his castle for four years and he never saw his dream of the ever being built. Like he didn't get to see that part come to fruition. But he's a little bit more the a little bit
0: the a little bit of
1: They never... bit yeah, a little bit of Yeah, little bit of a little bit of a little bit of a a little bit of a 1908 when she moved away. I don't know if to live with a child or what, but she moved away. Um, After Mary moved away, nine other people, um, a number of them prominent Kalamazooians, um, owned the castle. Um, I didn't get into that because I didn't feel like it. None of them were interesting enough. (laughs) And it really had nothing to do with the paranormal so there was no point. Yeah. So in the 1920s, um, the brick stable on the property was converted to a four-car garage, and it's still a garage today. Um, I think it might be a guest house now. There's a building that still exists that looks like it always belonged with the house there. Um, In 1945, after the castle had been vacant for a number of years, it was subdivided into a few apartments by William Stufbergen. Stufbergen. Um, and he, is in, he and his family were some of the people that lived in the units, um, and this is, this is pretty standard for large mm-hmm. Queen Anne houses, yeah. that at some point they're split up into um, little apartments, just because they're so big. No, mm-hmm. most people do not need that much space, and can't maintain that much no space. No one needs
0: that much space. Not most people. Not a single if person needs that much 13 space. 13 children... Don't have 13 kids. There's <laughs> your solution. Anyway. So in
1: 1957, the house was bought, with the goal of it becoming the future location of the Kalamazoo Art Center... But the Art Institute never actually bothered to move from its location in downtown Kalamazoo. So the castle's ownership transferred to Kalamazoo College. In 1975, Dr. Jesse Walker bought the house and began restoring it. And this process was continued by the next owner, uh, Frederick Royce, who bought it in 1981. Mm -hmm. So, like, it quickly, for, like, in the grand scheme of old tiny houses we've covered, someone loved it right away. Yeah.
0: It's never, like... (laughs) No one ever just abused it. Just abandoned for years and years and yeah. years. Yeah.
1: It laid vacant briefly, oh, but that, that just happens. In 2005, Laura and Peter Livingstone McNellis acquired the property and That's opened it as a um and b And then in 2011, the current owner, Francois Moyer um, got the property and continued running it as a BnB also adding a restaurant. He's like, I think he's like a classically trained French chef.
0: Wow. And so he's the one who,
1: he's the chef We're for going. the restaurant. Um, I've been we can go again though I'd love to take you here wow. we love it so Goodbye. much no you love it so much <laughs> um, the castle has been the setting of three horror films none of them very big but it's been used for mm-hmm. that kind of thing that's always fun to mention so in case you're ever like watching something you're like is that that if you ever look into this place you're like yeah it was um, the B&B at the castle currently boasts 10 rooms um, with an intriguing blend this is quoted now of um, architectural artistic antique as well as um, modern amenities including wireless access for business travelers um, heated marble floors uh, crystal chandeliers gorgeous leaded and stained glass windows um, fiber optic accents a sauna a steam room and a rooftop hot tub Um, they make the castle a haven in the city and a romantic dream come true (laughs) dream come true it's an adorable place um, so the restaurant is open daily for breakfast and high tea, and open Wednesday through Sunday for dinner. In case you ever want to plan a vacation here, I'm, I like to, you know, you do that too. It's nice to, you, you can go here, support them. Yeah. So they can stay open. These are cool old places. places. Um, anyway, so we're just the paranormal, because it has a short, sweet, to the yeah. point history for it.
0: Not um, as short sure as most of my on paranormals.
1: <laughs> All right, it was built around this time. Okay. the all um, so, guests at the Henderson Castle have reported seeing apparitions of Frank wandering the grounds. Um, they've also seen Mary, an unknown little girl, and someone they call a war veteran has been reported wandering <laughs> around the house and grounds too. He's not actually um, a war veteran. He we'll he's see. He's wearing one of
0: those purpose jackets.
1: <laughs> exactly. There's a lot of options. <laughs> um, there's the the two main ones though are um, the veteran may have been the ghost of. Um, Claire Burley who served in the Spanish-American War with Henderson's son or my personal um guess is that it might not have been a veteran at all it might have just been like maybe Frank's wearing some funny regalia as a ghost sometimes and it's like just military adjacent looking and you just wouldn't realize that because like a lot of regalia is from the in a military for various culty reasons um so it totally could have just been someone in the regalia his company made just wandering around as a ghost um because there seems to be a number of outfits seen here. Mm-hmm. Um, whether those are different ghosts each time or there's some ghostly changing happening, we don't know. Like, they have a changing room and they're changing in the changing room. Because sometimes, we'll get there. Uh, so, ghosts and employees have experienced unexplained noises and seen figures in Victoria-era cl- clothing. Um, it, a ghost dog has been experienced. That one's not highly <gasps> reported, though.
0: Um he doesn't like everybody. He picks up dog The
1: uh, Southern Michigan Paranormals, which is a group, has investigated the castle a number of times and say they're rarely disappointed in their time in the castle, often getting intelligent EVPs, and have a number of times out of their corner of their eyes seen someone at the top of the stairs that they believe to be Mary. Um, when the Livingstone McNellises owned the uh, B&B, their son reportedly saw a woman in victorian dress in mary's dressing room which is why i was like they might be changing in the dressing room it could be just two ghosts the whole time and they just have outfits (laughs) um and uh, apparently like the boy was never scared by it he was just sort of fascinated and like described it showing like an old-timey pictures oh yeah she was sort of dressed like that and like like like, to this day he's like yeah it's this, it was not a bad experience for him. He was not in any way scared by the ghost he saw in Mary's dressing room. Yeah. Which really says something for the environment, like, the energy in the space. Because if you most people they saw a ghost, mm-mm. <laughs> so a staff member reported that there were a number of times, um, on the stairs that she felt like someone was walking by her, either going up and down, like, they brushed by. Mm-hmm. Um, another staff member reported that one day while walking into the scullery, um, all of the uppermost cabinets were open. And these uppermost cabinets are, like, on the ceiling. on, And these aren't, like, standard ceilings now. Yeah. These are, like, the high old-timey ceilings. Like, these are only accessible by stepladders. And she had just walked through there. Mm-hmm. Like, she'd walked through there, came back in, and then all of those doors were open. She's like,
0: come on, <laughs> I can't reach that. I
1: do to get the stepladder now. But, like, no one could have just done that in that time frame. Yeah. She was gone because you have to um, use some sort of tool to achieve that. Unless you're a ghost, um, so a bookkeeper reported that whenever she was in the castle alone, um, she would hear banging on the doors in the upper levels, and it was only when she was alone. And she did not necessarily like that, just because it sort of it freaks you out a little bit. Yeah. Um, so she would just make it a point to not be the last one out of the out of the hotel. <laughs> um, the paranormal activity, though, in this castle is considered special, as it has never appeared malevolent in nature. There's yeah. not even, like, one weird freaky thing in the basement. Like, it's all over... Everyone's just like, it's nice here. Everyone... Everything here is nice. really um It's like the uh, end of Haunted
0: Mansion.
1: Yeah, it's like the end of Haunted Mansion. <laughs> but the evil has been banished. Everyone just likes to stay in the house because it's neat. Um, So Franco- Franco- Francois... Francois... Moyet- <laughs> Francois Francois, Francois. <laughs> Francois Moyen, the current owner, um, says the paranormal activity at the castle is normal and frequent. Um, he believes almost all of it is Frank or Mary, um, and that Frank runs the place and that Frank is the owner and Francois is just the guardian. Um, that's, a good way to look that's at how, it. that's how Francois feels about owning this beautiful building. Um, he said that he's never seen an apparition but he's witnessed a number of unexplained events and um most sightings from others are either mary or frank um that he just thinks they're watching over their beautiful dream home Mm -hmm. um which really truly seems the case (laughs) so in the dining room one of the cross beams has strange marks on it almost like writing and um a medium came in because mediums love this place so do investigators all the paranormal people are attracted to it because it's a BnB and b that you can easily stay in yeah um, and that you like have relatively free access to most of the nooks and crannies mm-hmm. except for like the specific rooms when they're busy otherwise the rooms are open you can always go in them yeah because um, they're really really cool you want to show off the other cool rooms, so you stay there again to stay in the fun cool rooms it's a great like staycation place to go um so anyway, a medium once said that during construction of the building, a little girl fell off the beam beam while writing on it. Didn't mention that she died. She just says that's well, how, how she get up there? got there. <laughs> Climbed. Okay. And that um, it said that every time the beam is restored or <clears throat> maintained, so you know, sanding it down and refinishing it in any way, painting, who knows what. Um, but the marks are always like visible after, hmm. like they can't be covered up, which is odd. Um, during renovations in 2012, workers found a jewelry box under some floorboards in a room that was connected to um, Frank and Mary's like master bedroom. yeah and it could also be the the um changing room that the dressing room but that, that that would logically be attached so it mm-hmm. might have been that room I don't know. there might be more than one room attached <coughs> either way. they were in a room attached to the main bedroom and they found a jewelry box under the floorboards. And prior to it, the door to this little room was constantly opening. Just like it couldn't it couldn't stay closed. Which is not uncommon in old houses due to like things shifting and all that. But Mm -hmm. as soon as the box was removed, the door no longer had this issue.
0: (laughs) They're like, get it out of there. Come on. Like you
1: please. Whether they hid it there or like some maid hid it there, who knows. But it's been found now and they're no longer frustrated about it being hidden there. Um Guests and paranormal investigators often find strange faces in their photos when taking pictures of the amazing stained glass window that presides over the grand stairway. It's mm-hmm. truly an insanely beautiful window. Um, guests often comment on how time just seems to slow in the castle. It's just the energy is different inside, and a good. It's great to relax. Yeah, <laughs> if time's slowing down there. Um, I'm, I'm reflecting on like my time in the castle. Honestly, it felt like I was in a Nancy Drew game. (laughs) Yeah. Because it was just so wild. Just, like, all the different things happening at once. And, like, the strange people that we met there... Cause like that kind of space attracts a certain kind of yeah. person and that's the kind of person that's always in like Nancy like the weird people who are staying at like the Icicle Lodge or like the castle. The Marie
0: Antoinette one.
1: The Moran- yeah, no, literally it felt like a Nancy Drew game between how it looked and like how you could just get into everything. You were allowed to touch basically everything in this place, which is yeah. not necessarily always the case. Um, so you just open everything. The access to the rooftop hot tub is like a puzzle in itself to open so it feels like you're not supposed to be able to go out there but you absolutely can just yeah. go hang out on the rooftop um but just oh, it's such a cool place um also i had been there this was like the last second to last day i think after being in michigan for like two weeks and it was like the best sleep i had gotten yeah which is i don't have trouble sleeping in general i don't have trouble sleeping on vacations i do however have trouble sleeping in places that i think might be haunted and i did my best ever to not look this place up at all beforehand just in Mm -hmm. case because that would have freaked me out more and then i would never have slept at all normally in places that i think are spooky um not necessarily because it feels like it's spooky just because i will I'm just like scared of witnessing something paranormal, yeah. so I'll get myself into a frenzy, and then I'll just like sit the entire night with my eyes like forcefully closed underneath the blanket, so I can't see anything. It's my fears witnessing things, right? Sometimes I'll even like plug my ears when I'm really scared. Oh my um, gosh, I like slept, slept here. I didn't feel scared to go into the bathroom alone. I didn't feel scared to go explore alone. I didn't feel scared to do anything in this place, which is crazy for me. Yeah. Um, because normally i I would entirely on edge which like to me means something was there calming me down basically because there's that's not that's not the norm for me in scary old places that yeah. I have to sleep um, so it was it was a lovely change <laughs> change of pace for me in scary places I had um, 10 out of 10 recommend uh, staying at Henderson Castle for all its, yeah, for just it it's up. lovely vibes if you just need to go feel calm <laughs> yeah it has the energy that's 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 one of the only places i've ever been because i've been in places that have entirely like neutral energy like i feel like battlefields feel that way because it's done and over and everyone's ready to be done with it i've been in places that drain you like um concentration camps they drain you i've never been in a place that seems to add energy to you in a good way (laughs) I'm not, like, an energy and aura person either. Like, I'm not a big into psychics person. But, like, I do think certain places feel certain ways because I felt it. That's not a thinking thing. That's just an experience thing.
0: (sighs) Well, anyway, try not to kill anybody on dumbest Ouija boards. Bye. Bye.